0: Welcome to A Teaspoon of Healing, where we explore the pathways to wellness and vibrant living. Listen to personal stories of healing and interviews with experts. It's time to open a doorway to healing in your life through positive changes. Here is your host, Dawn Damari.
1: Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to A Teaspoon of Healing. This is episode 17 of the podcast. Well, today's guest is Morgan McKean, She's an intuitive empath, and we're going to be learning what those two terms mean. And Morgan has a lot of experience helping people with relationships. And in this particular episode, we're going to be talking about healing from abuse, from abusive relationships. And we're also going to be talking about specifically dealing with and recovering from abuse from narcissistic relationships. So if you are or have been in a relationship with a narcissistic partner. Morgan has experience dealing with that from her own life and from her clients. So she's going to give you some tips on how to heal the hurt from that. Now, narcissist is a word that's kind of thrown around a lot nowadays. So it's important to note that narcissistic personality disorder can only be diagnosed by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It's not just something you can apply to your ex if he or she was a jerk, and again, it's something that needs to be diagnosed, and these kind of relationships can be romantic, they can be friendships, they can be family members or co-workers, but in this podcast, we're going to be dealing with romantic relationships. So stay tuned, and Morgan will give us some tips on how to heal the hurt from abusive relationships.
0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application or interpretation of the information presented herein.
1: And before we get into our interview, let's hear from one of our sponsors, Golf Tours.
0: Hi, this is Goff, owner of Goff Tours, specializing in stand-up paddleboarding or surfing lessons. I even do snorkeling. You can reach me here. Orange County has what you're looking for. You can contact me via email at gofftours at gmail.com or mobile number is 949-338-5937, gofftours.com.
1: And you're listening to A Teaspoon of Healing. Well, today, my guest is Morgan McKean, Intuitive Empath. Hi, Morgan. Hey, John. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for being on A Teaspoon of Healing. So, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. I'm enjoying the little overcastness we've got out here in Southern California. Me too. So, Morgan, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. So, I was born an intuitive empath and i started studying spirituality and the human potential movement right around 6 years old so you might say i grew up in a powerhouse of metaphysics and psychics and energy healing and all of that kind of stuff but it wasn't until probably i'd say the last 10 years or so that i have been using my gifts and my studies professionally to help other people cut the BS stories in their head, and focus their belief system and their thought patterns towards those things that would bring them the most happiness.
1: So you've been an intuitive and an empath since you were born. So for our listeners who don't know what those terms mean, how would you describe an intuitive empath? What is an empath? And obviously intuitive means you rely on your intuition, but it's a specific term. And could you explain what, that, what it means for people who might not know?
2: Sure. So the way I like to explain me being an intuitive is I'm very clairvoyant, claircognizant, and clairsentient. And the best way to describe this in more lay terms is being at the grocery store in the express lane, you know, 10 items or less. And there's someone in front of you who say maybe has 15 to 20 items, and you know that they're not following the rules, but you can also sense for whatever reason, even if they don't talk to you, even if you don't interact with them, that you probably, you know, there's something going on with them. They're stressed. They're upset. There's a reason why they've got 20 items in this 10 items or less lane. There's something not your, that your five senses pick up your eyes, your smell, your sound, your touch, all of those, but something else within you that can recognize that there's something going on with this person that, you know, there's a reason behind what's going on. You know, they're not following the rules for me. Not only can I sense, use my intuition to sense that there's something up, but I almost have it on steroids where I can tell you, well, they're going through a divorce or their boss just yelled at them or they're not going to get to their kid's play on time or whatever the case may be. I have leaned into those senses, if you will, and I get feedback, visual, audio, sometimes feeling in my body as to what's going on with that person. So that's intuitive or my version of intuitive. Some people like to say I fall in the realm of psychic, but I prefer the intuitive lane because that's how I feel that I'm getting the information. An empath also works very similar to an intuitive, but they're taking in nothing but feeling and energy. So separately, an empath, let's say, might also sense that there's something up with this person, but only at heightened levels. They wouldn't necessarily be able to see, feel, or hear messages about what's going on with this person, but they might feel in their body the tension this person is feeling, or feel in their body the embarrassment or shame or anger or whatever it is. So when you put those two together... When I am standing in a crowd, you know, using the express lane again, if you will, and there's someone like that in front of me, my body can actually feel their emotional vibrational frequency, what's going on with them. And then my intuition can actually read the person and let me know in further detail if I choose, and that took a lot of years to master, but if I choose to take in the information about, you know, what's going on with them. And I can normally give them signs or information or something that might soothe them and make them feel better.
1: Wow. And that's a wonderful gift to have. I imagine, though, that it also can put undue stress on you. Is there a way to turn that off? Because I bet you you could probably get these messages or these imprints about people, like you said, just standing in the express lane. And that can crowd out a lot of your your own thoughts and your own you know, reactions, your, basically your daily life. So is there a way to turn that off or to kind of block it out?
2: Well, so I'll tell you, as I said, I was born with these gifts. So very different than someone who's gone to study with someone who teaches them about, you know, opening and closing your energy or blocking people's energy or protecting yourself. I've had to learn everything the hard way, which I'm really okay with at this point, because then it allows me to explain it in lay terms, if you will. So when I was 19 years old, it was the first time I really noticed my empathic gifts going on in a way that I could not explain. I was at a new age music concert with a bunch of adults, even though I was 19, I was by 20 years, you know, the youngest person in the audience. And we were early. And the more and more people who came into this amphitheater, the more tense I got. But I had no reason to be tense. But what I was feeling is all of these people's energies, you know, my 19-year-old self that didn't have a mortgage and didn't have a lot of bills and didn't have all of that. I didn't have those stressors yet. But everybody in this amphitheater did. And so I remember thinking I had to actually go to the restroom and physically calm myself down because I was so overwhelmed. I got physically nauseous, you know, just my stomach nauseous turning and all of that. So That was the first time that I really noticed besides high school angst and all of that, which when you can't tell if it's your hormones or your intuition, you're all messed up for a while. But, you know, 19, I was out on my own enough and and I had this understanding. So after a few more times of things like this happening, the pattern had formed. You know, sometimes when it's a first or first noticeable, we don't realize it. But after it happens a few more times, we notice it. And so I realized that what I was doing is being constantly open to everybody all of the time, which is where a lot of empaths get into trouble. You know, when they say that, you know, I'm constantly the sponge. Well, you are, but you don't have to be, but you, and you need to learn to take care of yourself. So some of the things that you do is remind yourself that we are all energy. All of us. We are all vibrating at a certain frequency, no matter what. You know, we may look physical, But under the microscope, we can see the atoms and the neurons and all of those things bouncing everywhere. And we know there's lots of space in between. So it's not just spiritual. This is scientific, folks. You know, It's been scientifically proven that we're energy. And so what I do now is there's two forms. At the beginning of my day, when I'm in the shower, I actually put a energy bubble around me. And no, I'm not talking about fairy tales, folks. It's real. You have energy around you. You put an energy bubble around you to kind of ward off any random, if you will. Like we put on a moisturizer for anti-free radicals for our skin. Well, this is like doing that same barrier between you and the world. And then at the end of my day, I'll take a shower or I'll stand there, you know, don't want to waste water, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And you actually see any residue or any negative energy that's kind of sticking on you. And you literally imagine it washing down the drain off of you. Energy is moved by thought. That's all that we need in order to move energy as a thought form to push it a certain direction. So in the morning, by putting that thought shield up, you're saying, you know what? I'm not really available to be a sponge to everything around me. And in the evening, you're saying, should have anything gotten sticky or gotten through the cracks, I'm going to now release and remove it as I put my body into a rest zone. So those are two really big major things you can do at the beginning of your day or the end of the day if you're an empath or an energy sensitive person who needs a little bit more protection so that you're not so available to absorb outside energies.
1: I hope that helps some people because I know there's a lot of people out there that are empaths that don't even know it, sensitive people or who are just people that are very energy sensitive. I know I'm one of them and I know several people have reached out to me. And they're into this as well. And it seems sensitivity is a gift, but you've got to be able to protect yourself and wash it away at the end of the day. I like those tips. I'm actually going to try them myself.
2: Yeah, I have shared them with quite a few clients. Not to go off on that, but if it is something that you struggle with, you know, both both those being mindful of who and what you really are is the first step. And that's why I bring up that concert because you don't really know. Like I said, when I was that young, I had no idea that that's what was coming in because all of my episodes like that up until then have been built around normal, natural childhood. You know, you're getting braces, you're going to the prom, you're graduating from eighth grade or high school. You know, there were things that already have certain emotional triggers surrounding them. But just being at this concert was like, wow, what just happened? I was in a good mood, ready to see a concert. And now with just people entering, nothing happening, no word exchanges, nothing bad. But all of a sudden now I feel so pressured and stressed that I'm nauseated for what would look on the surface to be no reason. So if you find that you have these patterns of being in places where you feel seemingly okay, and then all of a sudden, You know, you don't, you might want to go ahead and look because that's one of the first signs that you have a hypersensitive energy or you are an empath or somewhere down that path. And that's one of the first steps to protecting yourself is acknowledging that you're an energy sensitive person. Absolutely.
1: And I really like that analogy with the concert. And I think it was going to help a lot of people. Now, you're an intuitive empath and you've also done relationship mentoring, you're the author of the self-help guidebook for women called Becoming Princess Charming. Maybe we could talk about that for a little bit. And you also had a radio show. So so your self-help guidebook, Becoming Princess Charming, maybe just a little snippet about that. What what was that about?
2: So on my path to finding the best way to use my gifts, I noticed that I had a knack for relationships. You know, that kind of seems to be where my gifts are strongest is in terms of human connection and the connections that, you know, keep us all bound to one another as we are one. So the way that all of that kind of plays together, the relationship coaching, the book and the radio show is when I was learning to do this, I was asked by many people along my career path, please do relationship coaching. And one of the places I did that was a very high end matchmaking agency you know, I would help the couples kind of navigate the waters of those first few dates, especially blind dates and matchmaking situations. And while I found that I loved it, it didn't give me the satisfaction of going as deep as I wanted. So from there, I decided to write the book, Becoming Princess Charming, Creating the Magical Mindset for Your Happily Ever After. And what I did there is I have a tendency to take quantum physics, metaphysics, and spiritual concepts and bring them all the way down to, you know, sex in the city language or reality show language, very plain spoken. So what I noticed is while I was explaining to a lot of people about relationships and what it takes to be happy, when I was using these different terms, I would get the blank stare. So what I did with Becoming Princess Charming is kind of use the best of both of my worlds. I also come from a TV and entertainment background. So I decided to make it fun using princesses within each of the chapters, and I made them six session chapters with me called Fun, Food, and Fitness, and Men, Money, and Meaning. And each one of them helps guide you to your self-love place in those areas so that you're receptive, attracted to, and attractive to the kind of person that you would want to get involved with. And from the book, I had quite an audience, an online audience, that it gained some traction. And I was offered to do a radio show called The Love Lab at KXM1 Laguna Beach. And what I did there is interview other guests and also gave out advice about love and metaphysical principles to getting love, as well as real world, you know, when not to text, who needs to be the aggressor, who pays on the first date. I addressed all that kind of stuff, as well as the energy exchanges between two people that are required for a successful relationship. So all three of those kind of played off of one another in my progression doing this work.
1: Nice. So now it seems that you're shifting gears again. I follow you on Instagram and Facebook, and I've seen some of your most recent work, and it seems like you're still involved in intuitive work, intuitive and relationship mentoring, but you're shifting your focus to helping people heal from narcissistic
2: and abusive relationships. Can you share why you made this shift? For the outsider, it may not seem like a natural progression, but part of the reason that I developed a knack for relationships is because I started my life off in a broken home. My parents got divorced when I was about five years old, and my father struggled with narcissism, bipolar, and was an alcoholic. And I don't really talk much about my mother's issues, but let's just say that there were some there that I also had to overcome and deal with. And this set me up to being very good at seeing the difficulties in relationships. But unfortunately, it also made difficult and abusive relationships very familiar to me, as in family, familiar, those things that we go and seek out in the world to duplicate once we leave the nest. We go out looking for a partner that is familiar, feels like family, that is comfortable. So when a person starts off in an abusive background, if you will, if their foundation has that woven through in it, then abuse is what becomes familiar or comfortable. And I had had a series of abusive relationships in my 20s, both domestic violent and narcissistic. And to meet me in person, most people are pretty shocked. You know, I'm about six feet tall. I have this big energy. You know, I used to model and act me in front of the camera. So I'm guessing that means I'm okay looking, And yet, I would continue to duplicate this pattern of being in abusive relationships until I met my son's father, who was the king of all abusers of me until that time. He had created, you know, so much violence between us. He had punched me, hit me, choked me, even held a gun on me. So what I decided to do after that experience was not date anyone, thinking, well, you know, I'm just not good at picking relationships, and I'm just going to kind of stay away. But what I was doing during that time is healing. But you can only heal so much when you're not relating or in relationship to another person. It takes that other person to go ahead and mirror or magnify for you what's going on. So after many years of maybe dating here and there and not being in too long of a relationship, and when I mean too long, I mean maybe three to six months max, I got involved with yet my last narcissist It was almost like this test that I had to pass in order to make my actual princess charming dreams come true. He came on with everything that I had ever thought I wanted. He was the right age, the right nationality. He was a single dad. He lived in my community. He was the local basketball coach. Like You know, he wasn't a princess charming fairy tale, but for real practical life and what he sold me on, it was all very real. And yet, I had the yellow flags go off. Certain things just did not add up. So within two to three months, I knew and I had broken it off, but he lured me back in using the ever-reliable hovering, which we'll get to in a little bit. And I literally crashed my intuitive practice into a wall. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to see clients. After everything he put me through, I just, I wanted to give up and I'll get into that a little bit more, but I literally, the, the pain and trauma from that just was beyond life bending. And after a few months of wallowing in it, and I'm not ashamed to admit, I did wallow in it. And I even went and looked at getting a nine to five job, a mentor, colleague, friend, all combined of mine, got on the phone with me because she saw me looking for a job and she was like, what are you doing? You save lives for a living. Your intuition, your empathy, 10, 12 years now of you being a coach, this is ridiculous. You are not going to get a job. And I had explained to her what had happened with the narcissist in greater detail than we have time to right here. And she was like, that is your message. Do you not see what you have lived over and over? You have a PhD in abuse. And as I started talking about it online, within less than 30 days, I had a private Facebook group with almost a hundred people. My Instagram had grown by 300 people. My Facebook had grown by four or 500 people. And I started getting all of these email messages. Oh my gosh, what you said to me today saved my life. And, you know, people were getting on the phone with me and I was coaching for free again because it was making me feel purposeful again. And what I realized was there was a huge call out in the universe For someone to come forward and deliver this information who was strong, someone people could look up to and say, well, wow, if it could happen to her, it's okay for it to have happened to me. And I realized all these years I've been coaching, I've been dancing around the subject, you know, helping people with relationships, but not telling them why I was so good at helping them. And it's because I have been in every kind of abusive, toxic relationship, you know, outside of prostitution or trafficking. You know, I don't want to make it sound like I was there, but, you know, just about every other type of mainstream, for lack of a better word, type of abuse I have experienced, starting from daddy to my son's father to the last narcissist who flipped my world on its head, and I couldn't be more grateful to him for doing it. And that's a
1: really powerful story, and I'm, I'm sorry that you went through all that, and I just know that you're going to be able to reach a lot of people, a lot of people that have gone, that are going through this, women and men. So first of all, for all intents and purposes, so what is narcissistic personality disorder?
2: So I'm glad that you asked because it's really common these days, just like, oh, he's a narcissist. You know, he's, she's a narcissist. She's putting too many pictures or selfies on social media. <laughs> and that's media. not
1: narcissism, right? So, that's, it's not,
2: yeah. Well, let, let, let's let okay. be real. A healthy person, anybody with healthy self-esteem and healthy ego has certain narcissistic traits. Personal grooming could be considered narcissistic. You know, taking any picture of yourself could be considered narcissistic. And yet we can see as human beings that, you know, those traits, they're not necessarily negative. So narcissist is thrown around way too much. That is narcissistic traits. And our society is definitely catering towards having narcissistic traits, we reward people for their social media posts. We reward politicians for being the biggest, toughest in the room. We reward athletes and actors and actresses for, you know, getting up and pounding their chest and saying, look at me. So there is that level of narcissism that I feel our society is kind of tanking on a little bit. However, in all fairness, that is not true narcissistic personality disorder. Narcissistic Personality disorder affects somewhere between 6 and 10% of the population in the United States. I don't know the world statistics, but I'm going to guess they're probably somewhere similar, at least in the Western world. They say out of those percentages, about 7.5% are men and 4.5%, or 4 to 4.5%, are women. So just so we know the averages, it is higher in men, it's more prevalent, but that's not to say it doesn't also exist in women. And the telltale signs of narcissism, very different than narcissistic traits, is a narcissist has no empathy or conscience about what they do. I'm going to give a couple of definitions because there's a lot of different ways that you may read online about what it is and how it works. And so I've kind of taken the best of all of them along using my own intuition to come up with these kind of parentheses of understanding, if you will. So one, they're lacking empathy and conscience so they can go after whatever they want without worrying about the aftermath or who they're hurting in the process of getting it. So that's one. Two, They very much parallel the emotional traits of a two to three-year-old. A two to three-year-old knows, you know, under tough scrutiny that they've got to sit in that chair and be quiet and be good. Just like the narcissist knows when they're on the job or at a party or something, they've got to be on their best behavior. But... Just like that two to three-year-old will break down in the grocery store at the checkout aisle when there's chocolate bar, you're not going to give them. So too, well, the narcissist gives you the silent treatment because you called them on not being the best whatever in the room. So there's that aspect, the two to three-year-old toddler. Then there's science where I happen to agree that says that while we are not born narcissists, our DNA or our genetic traits can lean us more towards that direction because MRIs have shown that people who are narcissistic have NPD actually have less gray matter in the brain where empathy would be processed. So there's also that aspect. And number three, I think that there's also... Those people who use narcissism as their trauma coping mechanism, that from my understanding, very much like an empath, they can feel too much. And so in order to cope with that very young, something traumatized them very young, their way of coping was by shedding off all empathy. It's only about me. It's only ever going to be about me. So those are more specific to someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. They may operate intellectually at whatever level. You know, that's why we see CEOs of corporations that are narcissists, because they can be highly intellectual. But if you look at the emotional IQ behavior, if you will, it's really stunted somewhere between two years old and five years old. So that's the best layman's way that I can think of to describe it to someone who's looking at a person that they're dealing with going, are you a narcissist or not? Well, if they don't show empathy, which they can fake, so you got to look for the pattern. If they don't cry at things, if they don't have a normal, hey, if I you know, smacked you and it hurts, I should take some responsibility for hitting you. That's missing. It's, it's not a joke. It's not funny. You can't love them out of it and you can't fix them out of it. It is an actual mental disorder, whether, like I said, by the trauma done, by the DNA done, by, you know, the processing of life done, this is who and what they are.
1: And it sounds like you definitely have some experience in your relationships. Uh, Have you also had experience professionally dealing with narcissism?
2: Yes. So over the years... In my practice, working with couples and relationships, I have dealt with quite a few people, before I shifted, and I'll get there in a minute, I dealt with quite a few people in my chair that thought that they were living love songs. If you ever listen to the majority of love songs on a radio, they are talking about narcissistic relationships. You know, you keep walking in and out of my life. Hello, narcissist, you're behaving, not behaving. I keep falling over in love with you. Yeah, that's because they treated you well, then they treated you bad. And when they want something, they're coming back. So people get very confused. So before I started focusing on this solely, I would say about one out of every 10 to 15 relationship issues that came through my office, if you will, had something to do with narcissism. But it wasn't until I decided to switch my practice over that I realized just how many, and I would say, since I've made this switch over the last five to six months, I have literally helped at least 200 people, at least just 200 people. Go through this process and understand that it's not their fault. What narcissism is, you know, what the lies are like, what the different terms are, how they affect your life. And it's funny, we have this joke. It's almost like they all go to the same narcissist academy. It's like there's an academy, a workbook, and they all studied for the same test and they're all out in the world performing the same tasks.
1: So when you meet someone, say you're dating and are there any red flags that someone can look for that the person has a narcissism And oftentimes they're very attractive. So I can see why a lot of people are getting entangled with them as well. But there's got to be some red flags that you can, that you might be able to see.
2: So one of the first things that you should notice, especially if we're all grown folk here, and I mean, you know, mid to late 20s on up, nobody falls in love in 2.5 seconds. You can fall infatuation. You can feel that little tinge that says, I'm going to love this person for the rest of my life. However, real love is based on mutual respect, honesty, admiration, and getting to know someone over the course of time. One of the telltale signs of a narcissist is they try to wrap you up rather quickly. They do things like say that you're their soulmate. You know, they couldn't live without you. You're the air that they breathe. They want constant attention, validation. It all comes on rather suddenly. And here's where the stereotype comes in as it's usually not always, but it's usually women who fall for the song and dance because they want the romance. And so a male narcissist usually becomes pretty well-versed in how to romance a woman. Now, Just because a man knows how to romance you does not mean he's a good partner. It means he's practiced the art of romance. And many of these men, if they're not narcissists, they're players. Not that we're going to go there today, but if we're looking for red flags, that's one of them. So back with narcissists, one of the first red flags is rushing the relationship, rushing and wanting to lock you down, move you in, get married, own you. You know, have you play the game their way. That's one of them. The next is playing the game their way. You'll notice they want to go to their restaurants, their dance halls, wear their kind of clothes. Everything becomes very much about them, even if it seems like it's about you. If you pay very close attention, he'll want to buy you the new shoes, but at the mall and store that he wants to buy them at. He wants to take you out to the nice dinner, but in the city and the restaurant and the town that he wants to go at. And you'd say, well, Morgan, that sounds like normal courting. Yes, but not all the time 24-7. Those are telltale signs. And the last in the beginning phase is watch for words and actions that do not match. Lots of times a narcissist over-promises, overuses flowery words, and does all that. And while their actions may kind of match for the first little bit, soon you'll start to see dents in it. And I mean, soon within the next, the first few months. So if you wait, you will come out ahead no matter what, because let's say they end up not being a narcissist and they just have high narcissistic traits. Well, giving yourself two to three months before you get fully committed to them gives you enough time to see that that is the case. And if they do happen to be a full-fledged narcissist, giving yourself that two, three, four months gives you enough time to kind of say, you know what, words and actions are not matching. Things tend to need to be your way. And you're trying to wrap me up into this relationship way too quick. Where do you think I'm going? So those are some things to look out for. Thank
1: you. And I hope that's going to help some people because they can be very attractive. And that's why I believe that's why, well, I'm just speaking of for women here that they can get taken in. I'm sure it's the same way with men and a narcissistic female is going to spend a lot of time on her appearance as well. So is that why they draw people in? Because it just seems like people really get drawn in by these people. And why, I'm wondering why well, that is. We
2: all have our own tools, if you will. You know, just like if you look at the animal world, the porcupine has its prickly things to keep you from hurting it. The skunk has a smell thing to keep you from getting at. And the peacock, you know, to use the attractiveness, has all its beautiful feathers that it shows you to attract you in. I believe that the narcissist's gifts are glamour as in like a holding a glamor, something that makes you feel it's glamorous and charm. And those are its lures to bringing in its target or prey. If someone can understand that a narcissist does not see people as people, but it sees people as appliances meant to serve them. So what it does to attract those appliances to serve them is create great lore using charm, and glamour, and what I've noticed to your point is, there are quite a few narcissistic people who, while they're okay looking attractively, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I'm just trying to draw the understanding. You know, some some of them are not such physically attractive people, but they use glamour and charm and put themselves together in such a way that is as, as attractive as they can be, and people find that charm alluring. So to your other point, that may be one of the first red flags that you look for is how charming and alluring is someone? How much are they trying to attract you in? You know, it could be just plain old insecurity or that it's appropriate to the situation, or it could be because they're using themselves as a magnet to magnetize their target so that they can bring them in and get what they want from you, which is supply.
1: Yes, and what is narcissistic supply? I've heard of that a lot.
2: So, narcissistic supply is the thing, the coin or term coined when you're talking about what it is that a narcissist is trying to get from you. It's called supply. This supply can be validation, it could be admiration, it could be sex, it could be money, it could be your time and energy. It could be you picking up the pieces after them. Supply is the energetic exchange or physical exchange of whatever it is that the narcissist is lacking and looking for from you. So if you find that, you know, lots of narcissists tend to be depressed even though they'll never show it to anybody besides themselves. So if you tend to be a highly animated and emotional person, very upbeat and happy and all of that, they'll be looking to extract that as your resource. If you happen to be flashy, have nice cars, big houses, you know, celebrities, you have a certain lifestyle, then the supply that they want to extract from you is your money, your contacts, those kind of things. So supply in its most basic form is the energetic exchange or physical exchange of whatever it is that the narcissist is looking to obtain for themselves. And they do it through their targets, which is us.
1: It almost sounds like a vampire like feeding on you.
2: They have been known to be what's called energy vampires. That is a very common term for narcissists.
1: So there's a relationship cycle in narcissism that I've heard about where they get rid of you at the end and there's A few different stages. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this relationship cycle if they are, they can maybe pinpoint if they're involved with someone or to know for the future?
2: So yes, there are different cycles and the basic ones is first the love bombing. Phase And the love bombing phase is what I was talking to you about in terms of the red flags that, that it is that you're looking for. Love bombing is the flowery words, the promises, the you're my soulmate, the promising of forever, pushing to live together or get married too quickly. Anything that feels like they're snaring you, that is the love bombing phase. Then what comes next is called the devaluing phase. And the devaluing phase normally happens when you've started to see cracks in the armor. You know, when you said, Hey, I want to go to this restaurant or, Hey, you said we were going to go out Saturday and I didn't hear from you all day. Any of these things that the narcissist perceives to be a dent in their delusions coming from you starts to make them devalue you or and this is very sad, if you start playing their game too quickly and giving in into all of their demands too quickly, they think, oh, this person's weak. I can walk all over them. I've gotten the money. I've gotten the fame. I've gotten the attention, the sex, the whatever it is that it may be that they wanted. And so now they're going to start devaluing you. In this phase, you'll see that you're not getting the same kind of attention. Maybe you're getting silent treatments. You might even getting yelled at, typically not abused just yet, outside of the obvious abuse, but I mean any kind of physical or full verbal lashings haven't happened yet. But they're just starting to take you off that pedestal. You're not getting the same treatment that you did before. And if you find that you're having to earn it or work harder to get the same attention you did in the beginning, chances are you're in the devaluing phase. What comes next is the discard phase. And in the discard phase, this is where the angry Battles start to show up where, you know, you're calling them on stuff, but you're so entangled and basically addicted to them because they've put you through trauma bonding in that discard phase. And just to clarify, trauma bonding is what happens during the inner minutes reward and punishment system that the narcissist puts on during the devaluing stage. That's what happens in that phase. So from devaluing, you go to discarding. And when they're now in the discarding phase, they're starting to fight and argue with you. You know, they'll call you names, they will berate you and all of that. Also, they're going to punish you with those silent treatments because those silent treatments are about them going out and cultivating other supply. They're either going out and getting new supply to make sure that they have somebody, you know, when you eventually dump them or they eventually dump you because you're headed towards discard, or they're going to go out and cultivate those old relationships, those old supply forms and see if they're ready to go. Once that happens, once they feel like they've got their claws into someone else and they're secure, the next time you act up, be prepared to be discarded discard can happen in the blink of an eye. It could be a text. It could be nothing. It could be a phone call. It could be a temper tantrum. Whatever it is, it doesn't mean anything. It just means you've caught them on their stuff, which is why after they've discarded you and they've moved on to someone new and gone through that whole little phase with them, they'll be back to Hoover you because now, just like a child, whatever you did you know, to bother them is no longer valid and they want to play with you again. So they'll send the I miss you text, what are you doing or what, not to see if they can hook you all over again. And then they'll just put you through the cycle again of love bombing, devaluing, discarding, empty phase, come back to Hoover again.
1: And it sounds like they find new targets kind of easily. I've heard about having like, they'll have like a harem. Of men or of women, you know, depending on their gender or sexual orientation. So, so they. What is a harem? So, what what is this? Is it use just followers, or do they groom their new targets through this harem usually, or what is this?
2: Well, lots of times people don't know that they're in a harem until it's too late. So, what happens is a narcissist after a while, even though they don't consciously know that there's anything wrong with them, they do know that they're bored easily and they don't get satisfied well and those kind of things. So they're constantly going after new supply. And because they're always charming, they're always attracting somebody, whether it's the Starbucks, the pizza place, you know, the basketball court, the grocery store, it doesn't matter. And I hate to say it, they're not always that picky because everybody is an appliance to them. So I've seen narcissists go from someone that I thought was drop dead, gorgeous, intelligent, wealthy, had the whole package. And walked away over somebody who, let's just say, wasn't of that caliber. I don't want to be mean to anybody, but they were just two totally different leagues. And in trying to understand, it was just, oh, well, she lets me be who I want to be. She's judging me. She doesn't make me do anything. So you have to understand for them, it is shallow relationships in and out quickly, people who don't judge them, and they're on to the next. And they try to keep everything lighthearted until they can't because they want to feel good. The narcissist is looking to feel good. They don't know how to feel good on their own. They don't know how to self-soothe on their own. So they're looking for that external validation, which is why supply is so important to them.
1: Wow. Okay. So that's, so the supply, when you having a narcissist kind of, I guess, feed on you, does it kind of drain your energy too? I would assume that it would, especially an energy sensitive person. Do you just feel like depleted, kind of probably makes you depressed, down? Because if there's somebody feeding off that energy, they're not building you up at that time.
2: No. So dealing with the narcissist, as we mentioned before, is very much like dealing with an energy vampire. They are literally sucking you dry. I think there's a meme that has circled around the internet several times of This skeleton of a man and this woman who's trying to love and hug him, just showing that no matter how much she does, she will never fill him up because he's incapable of being filled up. This is part of the reason that they go for empathic, emotionally available people, because those are the kind of people that emote energy and obviously emote feeling, which is easily accessible for them to grasp. And the other thing that I explained to trauma victims of narcissistic abuse is You now feel how the narcissist feels all the time, which is why they're always going after new supply. This depleted feeling, this depressed feeling, this sad feeling, this angry feeling, this empty worthlessness that you feel that's how the narcissist feels all the time. And so basically part of the energy exchange that I like to animate is to say, it's almost like they took a full you, you know, like your cup is full. They literally sucked and emptied you out until there was nothing left. And that's when they left and they sense to come back and hoover you when you've to filled up again. So for energy sensitive people, especially if you feel this tug in the beginning, run, it's not worth it. The lesson there already for them showing up is for you to learn, to love yourself, to not put up with it. You can shorthand the pain and agony. Maybe we've all got our own paths to walk, but you can intellectually shorten this by saying, you know what? I don't need to get pulled into a narcissistic relationship to realize that I need to work on self-love issues. Because I know there's a lot of schools of thought out there and I know people call it victim blaming. Let me tell you, I do not blame victims. I have been there. But what I am saying is had my self-love, self-confidence, self-esteem be up where it needs to be in all areas, specifically romantic relationships, none of them would have been able to hook me. Because you're only susceptible to the con when something in your life is missing. Some part of you is missing. That is where they hook you and keep you. That is where you don't stop the relationship and say, something's off here. Something isn't going quite right. You have to listen to that voice, especially as empathic and energy sensitive people. You have to listen to that part inside that says, hey, This may feel really good on a lot of levels, but it's missing. I can feel that twang in my system that says something's not quite right here. And you need to remove yourself as soon as possible, knowing that that showed up for you as a sign to fill yourself up more. Absolutely.
1: And so how do people get away from narcissists? I mean, what do they do? Block them? And, you know, they do this hoovering. So you must have to block them in every way possible. And it's almost like you have to escape and how do you do that?
2: So there are two different ways to do it. The first I want to share is called going no contact. Going no contact is just what it sounds. It means no contact, but it's not just blocking them from your phone, and it's not just blocking them from your email, and it's not just blocking them from your social media. It's blocking you from seeing theirs. So as I was explaining earlier, Something called trauma bonding happens between a narcissist and his victim during the love bombing phase, getting you attached to all the serotonin and feel good feelings. But it's really during the devaluing stage where you have the intermittent punishing and reward system going on that creates that trauma bonding between you and the person. So what you have to do is create no contact because you have actually become addicted to them. That's why it's so hard to leave. You have this addiction, this trauma bonding where you've bonded to this other person. So going no contact is about removing the idea of that person completely. Just like someone who is an alcoholic, they have the saying that, you know, one is too many and a thousand is never enough same is true between the bond between you and your narcissist. That one phone call, that one text, that one looking at their social media profile, sends you right back into wanting a hit. That is a hit. It is triggering your addiction. So going no contact literally means blocking off parents, blocking off children, blocking off Friends, blocking off work, going to a different gym, going to a different grocery store, doing whatever it is you need to do to remove that person from your world. That is the best and most thorough way to end the contact. The next is, unfortunately, quite a few people have married their narcissist and they have children with them or they are in legal dealings with them. And unfortunately, having narcissistic personality disorder is not against the law. So you have to kind of maneuver your way around using a method called gray rock method. What gray rock method is shortly is interacting with the abuser in such a way as to not give them any supply, no emoting, no feeling. So if you have legal dealings or children, you would create a communication path, if you will, between you and that person that says, you can email me every Thursday and Friday, five questions about the kids, and I will respond. If you have to physically interact with, you make sure to use a monotone voice, very little inflection, if any, like I said, monotone preferred. You don't want to make eye contact. You don't want to give any energy to the narcissist. Now, You must understand once you start implementing gray rock, they will for a bit try harder to antagonize, to get a rise, to get some kind of emotional feedback from you. You have to dig your feet in the ground and stay in this gray rock method. And usually, though not always, after a bit of time when they realize finally that they can no longer get emotional energy supply from you, they will focus their efforts elsewhere. And because if you do have children together, they're going to be in contact with you. It might take a while and you might trigger them from time to time. However, by implementing no gray rock, you put yourself in a power position to remove the triggers and hurt and abuse that they can cause you.
1: Excellent. Well, so there's those two methods, no contact and gray rock. So hopefully, hopefully people can use those to get away. And also at the end of this podcast, I will be providing people with your contact info and and more information about you. So one more thing about narcissistic relationships. So after you've gotten away, whether it's no contact or gray rock, how do you heal and rebuild your self-worth after going through something like this? Because I'm sure it's got to be pretty shattered, you know, at the end of something like this. So how do you rebuild?
2: So one of the first things that you do is prove to yourself you're not crazy, and I like to call that the research phase. You research however many articles, podcasts, books, videos, YouTube, whatever it is to confirm to yourself the trauma of what you've been through. Because that other person and your friends and family, coworkers, all of them are just not going to understand unless they've been through it. So you need to identify resources, people, and groups that can validate your experience back to you. That's step one. Because if you think that you're in the midst of crazy making and you can't really put your thumb on reality, you're going to have a hard time healing. So you need confirmation that, yes, narcissistic personality disorder is real. Yes, there is a very good chance that someone that I've been involved with has had it. And yes, it is a traumatizing, crazy making experience. That's one. So you're grounded that what you think happened to you really happened. Number two, you have to really confirm for yourself that the person you were with didn't love you or hate you. Neither of those were existent. They simply saw you as a means to an end to get their insecurities, their void, the things that they are lacking fed. It is this learning to not take it personally that is the first step in building your self-worth. So first you prove to yourself you're not crazy. Then you remind yourself, hey, wait a minute. I'm amazing, beautiful, talented, smart, all of these fabulous things. And none of it has anything to do with what this mentally disordered person said or did to me. Next, to heal the trauma bonding, you have to look at the situation and say, the love bombing was not real. That seems to be the harder part. It's, you know, you can accept the abuse at the end, but it's hard to believe that that good person that you first met isn't real. So then you convince yourself, hey, That person that they demonstrated for me, that was simply them using the tools that they had at their disposal to get me to come to them, to get me to lure me in there. So I know that I'm not crazy. I know that this person does not love or hate me. So I don't need to validate what they were thinking. And I also need to understand that this was a mentally disordered person. Then what I have to do is look and see why was I open and susceptible to this in the first place? What was missing in my life that made me available to take on such a risky relationship? Because you know there were yellow and red flags. You know that there were. So you have to look and say, what made me open? Was I lonely? Was I working too much? Was I was I not taking care of myself? You know, was I what was going on? Am I insecure? Do I think I don't deserve love? Whatever it is, start to identify that and then start filling in that void. So if you need to eat healthier, if you need to be more social, if you need to put blocks of, you know, fitness time in your schedule, if you need to put family time, whatever it is that's missing, you need to start filling it for yourself. You need to find those places that allowed something like this to happen in the first place. And by the time you get to that phase, you'll start to see openings. Life will start responding to you in a more positive way. You'll see opportunities to match your intention to fill in those spaces.
1: Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I hope it's going to help people out there. Actually, I know it's going to. So you have an online support group called Heal Your Hurt. How can people join this? And also, how can they get in touch with you for more information?
2: So what I did to help others is I created a free private Facebook group called Heal the Hurt and you can apply on Facebook just by going to groups and putting in Heal the Hurt. There's a couple of questions you have to answer because I'm very particular about who comes into this group and I do as much as I can through Facebook to screen them to make sure that we've invited no narcissist in. So you put in Heal the Hurt in Facebook and it'll bring you to groups and then you answer a couple of questions for me and you will either be approved immediately on the spot or we might ask you to answer a few more questions just to make sure as the privacy and safety of our group members is paramount. Also, I'm in the process of having a new website built, but in the meantime, listeners can go find me at my blog at beingmorgan.com, which is b i. I'm sorry, B-E-I-N-G M-O-R-G-A-N dot com. And there I have blog posts and the different services and groups that I offer and different things that you can access to support you on your process of healing.
1: Excellent. And then they can just contact you as well on there. I'm assuming you have an email or a contact form.
2: Yes, we have a contact form there, but one of the best ways to get a hold of me is to access me through instant messenger on Facebook. If you send me a message there, I tend to check in quite a bit there because I do get so many messages. So if you have a question, you can go to Morgan B. McKean at Facebook and you can direct message me and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Excellent.
1: And then you also have an Instagram as well, right?
2: I do have an Instagram by the same name, Morgan B. McKean, and I post there daily about how to heal the trauma from narcissistic and intimate partner abuse.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Morgan, for being a part of this podcast. Is there anything else you want to add before we sign off?
2: No, I think we pretty much covered everything regarding narcissism before opening up another can of worms today.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today and have a
2: wonderful day and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. If you have any questions for me or for Morgan, visit my website, teaspoonofhealing.com. Click on contact, fill out the form, and I'll get back to you. If you're currently not a subscriber of this show and you're an iTunes user, please go to iTunes, look up A Teaspoon of Healing, and click on subscribe. That way you won't miss any episodes. And I'd really appreciate it if you do enjoy this podcast. I'd love it if you would give me a a star rating, and a review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again next
0: week. Bye. Thank you for listening to A Teaspoon of Healing with Dawn Damari, your home for wellness and vibrant living. For more resources on wellness and vibrant living, visit us online at teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of the use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein.